the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm uh, your host today, Luke Fowler. I'm here with my co-host, Charlie Hunt. And we're both professors over in the School of Public Service at Boise State. And we have a very, very special guest today, uh, Dr. Helen Ingram, who is a professor emeritus uh, from the University of California at Irvine and also a research fellow at the University of Arizona Southwest Center. Did I get all your titles correct? Perfect. All right. Uh, so she's uh, here vo- visiting us at the School of Public Service this week to, to do some various stuff. So let's start with that. What, what, why, why are you here at Boise? Well, I was lucky enough to be invited a couple of years ago at the same time that my son uh, moved his law practice to Boise. And so this was a chance to do two things at the same time. And in addition, um, I have friends around the country who now have graduate students who are teaching in places. And the graduate student of one of my friends from Oregon State invited me. And that really tugs at your heartstrings when you get that kind of personal and networked uh, invitation. So it was easy to say yes to her. I've had a wonderful trip because we drove, and I have a a four-and-a-half-month-old puppy, and the puppy has totally enjoyed the trip because he gets undivided attention. We can't get away from him in a small car, Uh, and he's driving my son crazy now as I talk to you in the uh, radio. He's undoubtedly barking uh, at home. I just drove out here uh, a couple of months ago with my dog as well in the passenger seat, and it was a long trip from Washington, D.C., but uh, he definitely enjoyed it more than I did. I'm sure he did. So let's ask the most important question. What kind of puppy? He is a corgi. He's um, Oh, wow. He is a blonde and white corgi, but his uh, father was sable, so he has wonderful black markings around his ears and nose and tail, so he looks like uh, he's spent a lot of money on permanent makeup. <laughs> All right, that sounds like a reason enough to invite you out is just to bring puppies, right? Absolutely. Well, that's I'm sure he'd agree with that. <laughs> but there are other reasons you're out here. Uh, uh, a lot of I know the our faculty has been a buzz that you're that you're coming out because we're all really fascinated by your research. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about some of your research, the kind of things you've been working on? Absolutely. Lately? Well, perhaps it's useful to kind of go backward in the biography a little bit. Sure. I have a degree from Columbia University. And uh, we were children of the 60s, which meant we didn't do anything in the ordinary way. We bought a Volkswagen bus and started uh, going across the country, and we ran out of money when we hit Santa Fe. So uh, I was an ABD at that time, which uh, for the uninitiated is an all-but dissertation, and it's really a curse. A lot of people don't get past uh, that. Uh, but uh, I had to have a job, uh, so uh, and in order to keep that job, I had to get a dissertation finished with a couple of small kids. Not an easy uh, thing to try to do. But uh, my husband was working for the Sierra Club during a time of a big fight over the Grand Canyon dams of the Colorado. So I had all the material from the Sierra Club side of that. In addition, I uh, made a contact with Morris K. Udall, who was at that point the principal point person for this piece of legislation. So I got money from the Water Center, uh, which was great, uh, to take a little time off and to have travel money. I stayed at the YMCA or YWCA while I was in Washington, D.C. on $15 a day. And I interviewed all the major actors 
in the Colorado River Basin Bill, and that got me sort of into water resources. And at a time, women were considered so unimportant in general, and certainly in academic life, uh, while political scientists didn't really think water resources was part of their usual subject matter, uh, I got involved in that. So water was my first successful research area. How would you say, uh, you know, you mentioned the political scientists didn't necessarily acknowledge water as sort of, an, you know, water resources and important As a political thing. subject. Right. right. Well, in, what, in what ways is water resources a political subject? How does that interact? Right. Well, water flows through everything, you know, whether it's the environment, whether it's energy development, whether it's urban housing, uh, all of it depends on water. And we never have it where it needs to be from a human perspective at the time that we need it in the quality that we need it. So it, this is a subject matter rife with conflict, but it's an old subject matter, and people have worked out ways in which to avoid conflict over the subject of water. So from a political scientist point of view, how agreements are made on water is a wonderful study area. And I know you and I share interests in Congress. We do. And if one were to look at how to get a piece of legislation through Congress, there was no better case than looking at Morris K. Udall, whose brother at the time was Secretary of the Interior, That's right. and how they built a really bipartisan bunch of connections throughout the basin. You had to have complete agreement among congressional delegations, Republicans and Democrats, for this. Sounds very strange to talk about <laughs> it that. It does indeed. And, uh, and, you know, water plays into a lot of, you know, really serious political issues, too. I mean, just thinking about, you know, the, the Rio Grande, rivers at the border. I Absolutely. mean, these play critical issues in things like immigration, right? Absolutely. And we have had historically very excellent relationships about water. Part of it, of course, came because we needed Mexico's support during World War II. So we made agreements on the Colorado and on the Rio Grande. Actually, Mexico uh, did better on the Colorado than it ended up doing on the Rio Grande. But that good relationship about water uh, has been a separate one from our larger conflicts about immigration. We've been able to separate these questions out. However, interestingly, uh, they're putting barriers uh, on rivers causing flooding in various parts of the country, and that notion that water flows downhill irrespective of borders is a hard thing to convince some engineers, uh, you know, that you can't really put a dam there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, as uh, I was talking about with uh, our students, uh, the scientific fact and the engineering and the social construction and social values don't always come together very no, well. No, no. When I first moved to the University of Arizona, the water center director there was an international water people, and there's a lot of international water people. And he was telling about his time in, in, in India where all of the people in the village said the well has to be here. This is where the people are and this is where women can walk to get water. Uh, this is where it needs to be. And he said, but there isn't <laughs> there. Right. So this is an area where people's desires 
come face to face with physical facts, and they don't often mesh. And uh, as a consequence, we have moved water around from the time of the Romans. We've moved water around to serve people. But those moving it around has consequences for the natural environment and consequences for who pays for it and who gets it, who benefits and who loses. Great political questions. Yeah, uh, that kind of reminds me of a, a story a colleague told me that she was at this conference and an engineer does this big presentation about how we're going to s- fix our energy problems. And it really came down to like people are just going to have to stop having refrigerators in their houses and all this. And she just said, she told me she was just sitting there thinking like, all right, this person doesn't live in the real world. Because right. if, if you think that Americans are going to give up their refrigerators right. and their washing machines, like that's just not happening. And so that that engineering fact does not always work with the political reality. Yeah, we, no. we care a great deal about water, but water doesn't necessarily care about us. Exactly. Uh, uh, that's really fascinating stuff. We're going to take a, a quick break here on the Big Tent, but we'll be back uh, right after some of these messages. You are listening to KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Radio Boise, bringing community to the radio all over the Treasure Valley. Create Common Good is a nonprofit social enterprise that invests in those with barriers to employment by providing them with food service training and job placement. They help underserved populations like women overcoming domestic violence, someone rebuilding their life after incarceration or addiction, a refugee learning our language and culture, and many others. Create Common Good has been serving people in the Valley since 2008. You can learn more at createcommongood.org. You know how touring bands stop in Boise more often? Really? It's true. They drive here, often from great distances, bound out of their rigs, then set up in a music venue. What? Go on. Yeah, they also come down to the Radio Boise studios and play. Did you know that? Huh? No, I didn't. Did you now? Join us every Friday at 4 p.m. for live sounds. Local, regional, and national tunes. Good conversation and a few things about the artists that might surprise you. Yeah, count me in. Live Sounds, Fridays at 4 on Radio Boise. Proof that musicians are humans. We're back on the Big Ten. Um, I'm your host, Luke Fowler, here with Charlie Hunt, and we're discussing uh, policy in America today, and we have our special guest, uh, Dr. Helen Ingram from UC Irvine. Uh, And so last night you gave a a very interesting speech on public policy and democracy, um, and I believe it was called Public Policy and Democracy, the Wounded Elephant in the Corner. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what you talked about last night? Sure. I began by saying uh, that democracy is a wounded and injured thing in America today, but because of our traditional concerns, among other things, of uh, not letting uh, partisan questions enter the classroom, we've avoided some fundamental questions, it seems to me, in academic life about the big questions of where are we headed. And uh, there are many danger signs uh, about democracy. Some people think it's because of election laws. Other things people think it's uh, because of a partisan press, uh, deeply divided political parties, uh, bad leadership, uh, barriers to voting. 
other things like that. And my particular concern has been the messages sent by policy itself about who wins and who loses, who's virtuous and who isn't, who's deserving and who isn't, which sends messages that government serves some people over others and other people are consistent losers and have nothing to look forward to except costs from government. Therefore, they don't participate, and we end up in a system where the people who have the most to gain from political engagement are the least politically engaged. What's an example of a particular kind of policy that you think might uh, might uh, sort of be leading us down that kind of path? Well, I think one policy area is welfare. Uh, unfortunately, uh, welfare was passed originally for white widows of wars to make certain uh, that they could get through their life uh, with dignity. Uh, there were never concerns about farm workers or women who didn't have soldiers as husbands, uh, a very narrow notion of deserving. As that pool, a uh, target group, I call them, expanded over time, it began to include people of color and women and uh, that sense of some people getting undeserved privileges. And an image evolved of the welfare queen who has children actually in order to gain welfare. This was never supported by any kind of data. Uh, you know, this is not the ordinary circumstance, but that was the image. And that welfare queen image drove a lot of cutbacks of welfare benefits and the imposition of requirements such as mandatory testing and limiting welfare benefits to one year. Yet welfare mothers are extraordinarily hard to organize because they share the negative image and they say so-and-so is a welfare cheat, but not me. Not me. I am the exception. Not recognizing that together they could make some differences. And the poor are very difficult to organize, and welfare beneficiaries are particularly unengaged politically. Well, I mean, isn't that kind of a, a common thing uh, with the idea that like we're the, somehow we're the exception, right? Um, in the South, I've always had like, uh, we're, there's not white poor people, there's just embarrassed millionaires, right? <laughs> that they're just like, they're down on the luck today, that they're not, that's not systematic, they're not responsible for it, it's just that day when they're going to hit the lottery or they're going to make it big and that's what's holding them back. And so they're the exceptions and so we don't need better policies to support poor people because right. you're not going to be poor for long, right? Well, it seems to me that we are not very well informed about systematic and institutionalized barriers to making it on your own. Those of us who are proud to make it on our own uh, don't always recognize that our families came west uh, in that whole homestead movement. Uh, that was supported by the government, uh, that they travel on roads that were built in the 50s under the name of national security so you could transport things, that they're protected uh, by an army and uh, weapons manufacturers and a huge industry. We spend enormous amounts on our security 
for which we depend on government. We all receive education from government-supported institutions. And our ancestors have created wealth that we depend upon. Uh, uh, we draw upon that capital to send our kids to college. And all of that, it seems to me, is on uh, the shoulders of our forebearers. And we need to recognize that and pass it forward to the next generation with the notion that people don't make it on their own. They make it with a hand up from other people. Do you see this as this this lack of recognition as an informational educational problem or is it something that, uh, you know, people people know but they don't want but it's a psychological they don't want to internalize it or they they want it to you know not have been given anything right i think that we live our lives with some myths you know i grew up in the 50s and there was a lot of myths about what women could do and be good at it's taken a whole generation to change that and that doesn't at least in part, it's been the economic driver to make a decent living. Both partners have to work these days. But these myths of what people's natural roles are hold a lot of things back. And there is a myth that everybody is responsible for their own life. When in fact, uh, those of us who look hard at uh, inequality, recognize that it is the networks and the communities in which people are embedded that really determine their future. And it's relationships that matter and uh, networks that matter politically, not necessarily the individual. Well, and so, uh, Charlie, I, I mean, I, I think you summed it up well with your question earlier. I mean, this is two of the key challenges when we talk about politics. Um, one is the access to information and whether or not people are prepared to participate in a democracy, which particularly when we talk about water resources and environmental or other technical issues, like that becomes a big challenge. But the other thing is how much of this is based on identities, right? Um, right. And a lot of the research, and particularly our colleague Steve Udick has talked about this on our show before, is that we've supplanted a lot of our traditional gender, race, and all this and bought into the partisanship and that's how we define ourselves. And so it's so much harder for people to accept information that is contradictory to our identities. It's so much easier for us to buy into narratives that say that we did it on our own when we've internalized it and said, this is who I am as a person. And I'll just imagine Dr. Ingram being like, or, or President Obama, like, you didn't do it on your own, right? That's that's hateful and it's attacking to me, right? Right. So, I mean, that just becomes it a, is very, a problem. Yeah, it becomes very difficult to balance those things against each other. Well, I think that social psychologists have helped us a lot by exposing the extent to which everybody's reason is driven by emotion and stereotypes, labels, uh, images that are embedded in our minds. Uh, there are a couple of processes. One, quick thinking, which is what we do a lot of the time, especially about elements in the news, we come prepared to believe one side of things. And that is we construct within our heads narratives that fit our preconceptions. So when we talk about education, one important part of that education is that danger sign. Look, we're all driven by emotion. The most logical mathematician when it comes to the source, even picking this source of 
his or her research area depends upon values. And so we must, we're driven by emotion and values. And if we want to make sure that we're not taking too narrow a perspective, we need to communicate with others and we need to assess uh, information that comes to us, understanding that you're coming at it with a bias and see if you can flesh it out and hear the opposing arguments. And it is that uh, this is my team and I'm going to fight for it no matter what that gets us in trouble. These yeah. are some really persistent problems. Uh, and, and we're going to talk just after this short break uh, about where we've been, where we're going, and, uh, and uh, maybe even how we solve some of these problems. Uh, this is The Big Ten. I'm Radio Boise. Hi, this is Jessica Hernandez. You're listening to People Powered Radio, KRBX, 89.9 FM and 93.5 Downtown. This is 89.9 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond, because your voice matters. All right, we're back on the the Big Tent, and uh, we are here with our, our special guest, uh, Dr. Helen Ingram. And uh, our last segment, uh, you talked very uh, interestingly about some of these uh, these issues that go on with social construction and politics, and some of the challenges we face. And clearly, we're in a difficult political time today. Um, so, how does your work and some of the things you talk about help us understand what's going on, or help our listeners understand it? Well, I think that social psychologists have made a great contribution to understanding politics because they've told us the extent to which people are prey to fast thinking, which means they respond to issues with stereotypes, uh, labels, uh, and sometimes these things are heavily stigmatized. And uh, because someone uh, uses a code word that ticks us off, we put it in our minds as being that kind of question, and I've always thought this about that kind of question. For example, I've always thought, if you're a farmer and live in Idaho today, that cities are the great enemy of agriculture because uh, they make labor more expensive, uh, they make water more scarce and less clean, and uh, they take farmland out of production. So to simply say uh, urban needs will tick off in a farmer's mind all of his preconceived ideas about that, even if the subject is much more nuanced. Well, I think increasingly today, politicians, elected politicians who want to position themselves favorably with voters, use uh, signals and images and stigma to do good things for people they brand as, uh, uh, as, as worthy and uh, heap costs on people who are not well regarded and who have very little political power. And my favorite example is black teenagers and terror, terrorists that get way too much attention, way beyond uh, their actual threat, and uh, that we make things worse rather than better uh, with policies toward them. And we alienate particularly black youth from participation in politics when they could really uh, use understanding of politics to better uh, their opportunities. How do you think about this in terms of the way, you know, the, the, the two parties think about government and what government means? I mean, you know, 
It's, you know, often when when either side talks about government or what it's supposed to do, it's sort of through the lens of their worldview. And right. so if, 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 you know, this, you know, we, we were just talking about sort of the Reagan years and how, you know, okay, government is not a solution to a problem. It is the problem. And using that through that lens. But, you know, in, in, in my course about representation, you know, we're talking a lot about what government actually is and what it was originally supposed, supposed to be. Um, you know, how do you how do you think about that in terms of what the parties are sort of doing with that today? Well, it seems from the very beginning of our republic, we've had an argument about what American democracy is all about. The founding fathers were preoccupied with protecting individual liberty against the infringement of government. Uh, this is often called the Madisonian theory of democracy, is that democracy is supposed to give you freedom uh, to pursue your own religion, to have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, that kind of thing. There is another perspective on government, one to which I prescribe, which says that uh, government and public policy is to empower, enrich, inform uh, citizens for participation so that they can have a voice in getting what they need from government, but that's an informed voice leavened by the opinions of others. And to some extent, we continue to play out that same argument in contemporary politics. The problem is it's not in those elevated theoretical terms, but instead it's uh, negative social construction of, on the one hand, people who run around with guns, uh, shooting important wildlife, uh, taking way more than their share of water resources, and these people need to be brought under control and educated, which is one of those dangerous words, uh, because it always sounds like an Eastern elite that doesn't have any understanding of how we live in the West. On the other hand, there's this vision of the urban elite on the one hand uh, that is snotty and uh, uh, brags about its better educational institutions and other things, or the people of color and who are on welfare. It is not even true that most people on welfare of, of color, but that image of the welfare queen, which d d uh, drives many states to adopt laws such as mandatory testing uh, mm -hmm. in, in welfare, welfare homes uh, for drugs and uh, limiting the availability of uh, more than one year or so of benefits. So I think we're driven apart by these negative stereotypes. Uh you know, that kind of speaks to me. I mean, again, I, I grew up in Mississippi, and so this idea of building these negative stereotypes and growing up, uh, again, uh, in the, the Deep South, what I realized is the, the biggest difference between races or the biggest, I mean, a dividing point is socioeconomic class, right? And it has nothing to do with race. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that's one of the grand myths. But uh, I was uh, had the privilege of going to Croatia several years ago for a research trip, uh, and I was talking to somebody there uh, about some of the issues that went, uh, went along after Yugoslavia um, kind of fell apart. And uh, for brief history, lesson for our listeners that don't know Yugoslavia was a stable communist republic for for many years and then uh, its president died and then it split into several different countries and there was a long civil war um, that was the Balkans war the Bosnian war all these other things uh, and basically uh, the Croatians there said look we we lived in peace and we 
hung out with the Bosnians and everything. There was no problems. And then this republic fell apart. And then Croatian leaders raised up and said, you know why there's problems in your life? It's because of that group over there. Because of that group over there, you don't have jobs or you don't have education. And so it was really just identifying like ways for us to split ourselves into group. And that, of course, led to years and years of violence. Uh, But something that really was socially constructed and didn't exist in the decades before it, but people just decided that was the way to gain their own power. Well, isn't it easier, particularly in a time of scarce resources uh, and, uh, and budget crunches, to blame the other rather than to positively respond with aid and help? You know, in public policy, there's a variety of instruments that you can use. Authority instruments that say you do this or else, but they depend upon implementation of some authority which will use incarceration or force if you don't do it. Uh, Or you use such things as economic incentives and certainly providing uh, grants and subsidies or fines motivates people. Or you can use capacity building, which is a very much, in my view, a better tool, which prepares people to have the skills necessary to make the decisions that they need to make. Very often, people would like to do something, but they don't know how. The other thing is that people don't know they need to do it. It hasn't even occurred to them. So that sort of use of hortatory symbols, that is, things that excite the imagination. Uh, Look at the kids that are excited about climate change today. Uh, Much of that is not individual self-interest. It's collective benefits. That's all really fascinating stuff and and provides an interesting kind of roadmap of of where we are today. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Helen Ingram, for coming in and talking about some of these issues. Uh, For Luke Fowler, I'm I'm Charlie Hunt. This has been The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise.